Hi, everybody. Welcome to the May 1st, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get started with a quick take on the City of Denver Auditor's scathing report on the city's Treasury Division's lackluster efforts to monitor and collect marijuana sales taxes. Patty Calhoun from Westward, we always start with you. And on this one, it seems that if there's any time that we should be collecting taxes as a city or a state, this would be the time. Uh, what do you think is going to happen from this, as we say, blistering report from the Denver Auditor? Well, the bl- report is blistering about several things, but most of them are processes. It's not like we're really looking at a lot of money that hasn't been collected. And Lord knows, I love the pot industry right now because its advertising is keeping us in a print edition. So uh, they pay their bills with us, and I'm pretty sure they're paying the city. What the auditor caught was faulty record keeping on the side of the city. They also discovered that there are actually illegal delivery services running in Denver, which the city should be keeping an eye on. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, hopefully a report like this from the auditor would uh, spur some action. Uh, if it does, what kind of action do you think is most appropriate we should see from the city? Well, we're going to get all the action. This is another uh, example of why it's so good for Denver to have an elected auditor who is directly accountable to the people. The Denver Treasury Division has already agreed to implement nearly all of the recommended changes from the auditor by August 31. And the only exception is the Denver Treasury rightly decided not to keep years of private records about a business's customers and suppliers. As Denver Treasury said, those records belong to the businesses and the government has no legal authority to copy or retain those records. Elena Alvarez, reporter from Colorado Politics. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Elena, uh, I I think anything related uh, to marijuana, especially marijuana tax, is going to be a big issue. Uh, Do you think, do you see the city jumping on this issue because of such a scathing report? You know, I think some improvements will, I'm I'm at least hopeful that some improvements will come about this. We're not quite sure how much money was lost um, from these less than perfect practices. Um, But I think what this does show is that, you know, even in a state um, like Colorado, which is the most experienced with legal marijuana across the country, um, local governments, in this case, Denver's, are still trying to figure out and adjust to this new normal. Um, And so, again, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll see some improvements in the processes, but I really just think this is sort of ironing out the kinks of, of, of a new normal. And Leanne Wheeler, round to the panel. Leanne Wheeler from the Wheeler Advisory Group and an Air Force vet. So, uh, Leanne, when you look at this, do you see the uh, auditor spurring some action from the city? Uh, Is this one of these things that is going to light a fire, so to speak, uh, uh, with the government? You know, if this was the, were the first time that we've heard about a process management problem with the city of Denver, I'd be more hopeful. Uh, so I, I lean away from being uh, hopeful. If you recall, it's in recent history that there were a number of auditing problems and process management problems with Denver's Road Home, the 10-year uh, homeless uh, initiative. So we've definitely got a, an issue in the city um, with regard to process management and holding the right folks accountable. So I'm a little less hopeful maybe than the panel, um, but I'm also expectant that the under uh, revenue, the underestimate on this revenue will be enough to to, to light the fire. Um, I believe that a lot of money was left on the table by not tending to other uh, processes properly. Uh, and so it, it should call into question a number of, of process management uh, issues with the city. Well, you think a report certainly sparked some interest in the city, so we hope that uh, gets done.
Yes. Let's get to it. Late Thursday night, Governor Jared Polis released an executive order to slash state government spending, halt evictions for at least a month, and keep ski areas closed. Earlier this week, Governor Polis announced that by the end of May, Colorado should have 42 testing centers open statewide, tripling the current number of tests conducted. Uh, Patty, let's go to you again. What do you think about the the really the big budget moves? And this was any other time. This kind of budget slashing from the governor uh, wouldn't just be topic one in Colorado Inside Out. It would be headline news, be what everyone is talking about. Clearly, it's going to find its way in times like this. But uh, what do you think about the cuts that Governor Polis announced? Well, it's no surprise that we have cuts coming because anyone who's looked at the economy since March knows that we're in big trouble on this. Denver's looking at 7.5% cuts and dipping into its rainy day fund. Uh, Polis did extend a bunch of orders last night. In fact, one that came very, very late, which is allowing restaurants to continue selling liquor to go, which has really helped save that very important segment of Colorado. But we're looking at a lot of changes that are going to come at the end of May again, too. These are all extensions for the most part of orders he put out in April as he looks at the science of how the tests, how the tests are going, how the cases are going. We're going to now see how businesses are doing as they reopen. Will people wear masks? Will cases suddenly increase again? Will Hepolis have to change some of the rules? And that's not impossible. The one thing we know for certain is that the economy in Colorado and in Denver and everywhere else in the country is really decimated. And so these cuts are coming and they're going to keep coming. David, uh, you're one of our several experts when it comes to how the legislature and the governor, how, how the government works in the states. Uh, when the governor announces budget slashing like this, is it going to need to eventually get to the legislature? Is that just single-handedly something that can be done by the governor? If this is just spending, is that something that he has uh, power over? How does this work in our state government model? Well, ultimately, the uh, spending is, is controlled by the legislature in the appropriations bills it passes and then that are then signed by the governor. And our taxpayers' bill of rights requires there be a 3% reserve for state spending for situations like this. But last year, the budget that the legislature passed and the governor signed didn't fully fund the constitutionally required reserve. Instead, they claimed that $179 million in the reserve consisted of the value of state government buildings. Supposedly, if the reserve were needed, the state government would sell the buildings. That was always a ridiculous scenario. And now Coloradans are going to suffer because last year's $30 billion legislature was so greedy about maximizing spending, they ignored the Constitution's prudent requirement to keep a genuine reserve. Testing is another example of how bad government is making things worse. For tests, the United States has been way behind countries with more competent governments like South Korea and Taiwan. Early on, they adopted the best tests available. But in the U.S., the only legal test was one invented by the federal government, and it was very inaccurate. Not until March 13 did the Food and Drug Administration legalize any other test. If the FDA couldn't strangle testing, we could have used the same test that South Korea did and acted sooner when the invasion was more manageable. Now there are 70 different tests, which is great. Too bad the federal government prevented the U.S. from having some of those tests in February. So, Elena, as we're looking at uh, budget cuts and uh, spending cuts throughout the state government, that is going to impact people. It's not just, well, Governor Polis is going to save money and the state government's going to save money. That money was going to be spent on things, whether it's going to be helping people 
or companies or doing something. Uh, do you think we're going to start seeing some ripple effects from these cuts? Absolutely. Um, you know, more than $9 million, I think, has been slashed from Medicaid. Um, and, you know, there's some critical programs um, that, that, that are going to be slashed just inevitably. Um, so we'll definitely see some consequences. You know, I think the bottom line is that um, Polis has been feeling a lot of pressure lately. Um, for example, we talked about this last time I was on, you know, city council in mid-April, um, Denver City Council had passed a proclamation calling on the governor to um, halt um, rent and mortgage payments. Um, and just, you know, I actually live a couple of blocks away from the governor's mansion and saw eviction of notices uh, spread across the front gates. Um, so he's feeling a lot of pressure right now. And I think, you know, the 30-day suspension um, that he's placed on on evictions is reflective of that. Um, you know, I was told by his press, his press um, office that he didn't have the legal authority to do that. But I think that, you know, in a time like this and, and, and under this immense pressure, um, he sort of realized that this is, you know, the least controversial um, you know, maybe low hanging fruit uh, to sort of compromise as far as, you know, it's not an outright um, cut of rent or mortgage payments, but, you know, providing some relief for renters. Um, but, but we'll see the, uh, you know, the opposition to this um, come out pretty soon, I imagine. Leanne, do you think we're going to start hearing from some of the state legislators? And they're not officially in session because of the virus, but it's not as if they're not around and they, they can still chime in, uh, whether it be supporting or offering different ideas. Uh, do, do you think this will trigger some responses from other elected leaders in Colorado? Oh, uh, responses that don't look like you garner a bunch of folks and run down to the Capitol and protest as a seated elected official. Um, I hope so. Uh, I've I've heard um, uh, from from Aurora elected just about all of our state house and state senator reps. Um, what I believe is happening now is that folks are trying to figure out how to get behind a message that's correct. Um, and then propose solutions that are friendly, meaning they're not controversial in any way, that are fast, um, and we're losing a little bit on speed. Uh, as, as you pointed out earlier, Dominic, we're, we were caught flat-footed um, with this entire thing, and so speed is not our friend. So whatever we can implement fast, um, and then whatever we can implement free, no cost to the state or, or no hit to the, to the state budget. And I think that there are conversations happening offline that we aren't privy to, uh, along those three buckets or those three themes, um, I, it's time, way past time actually, uh, to hear from our electeds with a solution set um, to help us as a state move forward. Let's get to our next topic. This week, President Trump used the Defense Production Act to classify meat processors as critical infrastructure. This comes after some meatpacking plants have, have had COVID outbreaks. The order includes a JBS plant in Greeley, Colorado, where six workers have died of the virus as of this taping, and 245 workers have experienced symptoms. David, as we turn to you, it, it, it feels to me that um, there are how we define something that is suddenly uh, worthy of the Defense Production Act has kind of um, really depended on where, where everybody was at the particular week. Uh, we have a lot of food and Frank Farmer, we, we're hearing more headlines about farmers uh, getting rid of food because it can't get to market. We're hearing more people that are needing food banks and somehow in the middle. So I could see the point about this being needed. But here's the other thing. If I work anywhere near that JBS plant in Greeley, we already had six people, not six people with the virus, six people have already died 
Um, I would want it shut down just so that it could be cleaned properly. I can understand both sides of this. I don't know if there's one clean uh, solution. What do you think of the headlines and the boop from President Trump this week? Well, the, the clean solution is, is to follow the law, uh, which Trump is, is doing in, in this case. And um, very disappointed to hear about the governor uh, acknowledging he didn't have the authority to do this eviction freeze, but, but purportedly doing it anyway. That's, that's just uh, lawless. The only sure thing you can know about what President Trump does is that both he and the media will exaggerate. He did not require meat plants to open because the Defense Production Act doesn't give a president such authority. Rather, his order says that states cannot force meat and chicken plants to close if the plants comply with worker safety guidelines from the Occupational Health and Safety Administration and the Centers for Disease Control. Additionally, if a plant gets sued, the Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor, will consider participating in the legal defense of the plants that adhere to the safety guidelines and consider supporting the plaintiffs in cases where the plants did not adhere to the safety guidelines. Elena, it seems to me that this is going to be a big issue in Colorado. It's not only that we have, I think, a variety of plants, but we also have a lot of agriculture. This is part of our uh, economy. It's part of our culture. It's It's our people doing this. But we want our people safe. And I also don't want to run at King Supers on everything that is pork or beef related. Um, what's the best way for at least the government to be uh, addressing this seemingly a pretty sticky problem? It's not an easy, an easy answer. Um, you know, I, we can all sort of understand where Trump is coming from, I think, and the fact that, you know, the meat industry um, plays such a significant role in our economy. Um, and any disruption to that industry would be extremely visible to many, many Americans. Um, and so there are severe, you know, there, there are real economic um, and political consequences of choosing to allow meatpacking um, plants to, to stay open or not. Um, and so, you know, what I, what I think is just most important, and the JBS officials have now said that they've put these precautions in place, but it's just making sure that these workers, if they are working, are protected. Um, I think, you know, the JBS uh, plant didn't close until April 10th, I believe, um, to, to, uh, to install PPE equipment and to clean the facility. And I really think that begs the question, you know, why wasn't this done sooner? And I think they're seeing the, the consequences of that with these high numbers. And my, my thoughts just go out to these families and these workers. Leanne, do you think there's going to be a step up to actually help it be done safely? I think people want to see plants open. They see the critical part of the of the food supply. They also want to see people uh, being kept safe. Um, they would do this at your local King Supers or Walmart or anywhere else. If there was sickness, they would want it shut down, cleaned up, and then opened again. Are the, is there going to be people within the government, whatever level that is, to make sure that it's being done safely? You know, it would be my expectation uh, that that is the case. Um, This is actually a strong, strong organized labor discussion. Uh, No one's mentioned that yet. Um, What happened with uh, Walmart, what happened with JBS Meatpacking um, is uh, that union stepped in and made a lot of noise on behalf of workers to say this isn't safe. Um, So, Trump gets so little right uh, as he occurs for me. And to say uh, that now finally I'll use the, the Defense Production Act and I'm coming from a place of uh, my veteran service, understanding how that powerful tool could have been used three months ago 
to preclude where we are now, to prevent it from even happening, he's right to say that as long as these plants are doing the right thing uh, with regard to sanitation and protection for its workers, that the governor can't shut, nor should it shut down the meatpacking plants. Now, at the end of the day, however, or processing, excuse me, plants, at the end of the day, um, I would expect them to move toward this, but the actions of JBS over the last two, three weeks, um, I, I simply don't have the confidence uh, that they will, in fact, do the right thing. Patty, there's a lot of political factors in this. I mean, let me, I'm not going to underestimate the, the, the top line are people's safety and lives, but part of this issue is the fact that you do have labor unions involved, you have large industries involved, uh, big corporations, you have uh, people's livelihood, so you have, uh, you have all economies within the whole city of Greeley, uh, you have state governments, federal governments, the president. Uh, it's not missing much when it comes to ingredients. How do you think it's all going to roll out? It's going to be a mess. What isn't a mess these days? JBS has not always been a good corporate citizen in Colorado. We've done so many stories over the years about bad working conditions, issues on religious freedom. And this latest one, of course, is far more tragic because it has resulted in six deaths so far. And we could see more. JBS, of course, is not the only place that has these problems around the country. And we see it going all the way back to the farmers who are having to kill their chickens that can't be processed, kill their hogs that can't be processed. So it's right for the government to step in as it can. Maybe we can take some of those National Guard workers who've been helping with the homeless. Maybe they can go into these plants, help clean them, make sure they're clean, make sure processes are followed so that workers are safe. But clearly we need them to be reopened, but not until they're open and running in a safe way for consumers, for workers, for everyone. Denver City Council members Chris Hines and Candy Sedebaca delayed a vote for the city to receive funding from FEMA, questioning where the funding would go and what, alloc- what the allocation process would be. They cited Denver Health as an example of their concerns, since during the COVID crisis, Denver Health paid their executives bonuses while asking staff to take unpaid leave. Uh, Elena, I'm always grateful to have you on the panel, but especially when we get to a city topic like this, this is part of your beat with Colorado Politics there's a lot to break open here, not just what happened with in the meeting, but what's going on in Denver Health and everything in between. Uh, let us know what we need to know. Sure. Um, so, you know, bonuses at the top are never really a good look, um, especially when people are hurting. And that's the case right now. That's what happened. Um, you know, you had bonuses upwards of $200,000 to some um, executives at Denver Health. And so I think that um, Sidibaka and Hines were right in taking issue with that. Um, but their move uh, came as a surprise and upset actually a lot of people, including other council members in the mayor's office, um, because these FEMA dollars are actually, it's a reimbursement of uh, funds that the city, uh, city government, um, Denver Health and Denver International Airport um, have already spent or authorized to spend on um, the COVID-19 emergency response. Um, And so, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense to other city council members or Mayor Hancock, um, considering, you know, these funds have, again, they've already been spent or been authorized to to, to be spent. So it's just literally reimbursing um, the city's budget. Um, what 
Heinz also said, though, basing his decision, um, what he based his decision on was that the Hancock administration did not give him enough time to review the FEMA grant agreement. Um, and I think really that's indicative of um, a larger thing that we've been seeing a lot between the mayor's office and city council, which is, you know, there's sort of a breakdown of trust between a lot of the new members and um, the, the Hancock administration. So I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing here. Um, you know, the bottom line, I think, is that oversight is important, um, but I would be really surprised if um, the public viewed this decision um, from Heinz and, and Sidabaka favorably at a time when, you know, every penny counts and time's really of the essence. Leanne, when it comes time to uh, get notice of an issue, uh, for better or for worse, if you're going to tie it to something that is financially related during a crisis, you're probably going to get that attention. So again, uh, I'm not here to judge uh, right or wrong on what uh, council members Heinz and Sedebaca did, but uh, is that overall going to be something that helps the city or was this raising a flag at the wrong time or at least over the wrong issue? I believe there's going to be an optics problem no matter what. But the city of Denver has earned this scrutiny. Um, when you, we, we just had a conversation around mismanagement and, and failed audits and et cetera, et cetera. And so we really, we really need to, to move to a place where the city is being held accountable for all of those pennies, no matter where they come from. And as you look at bonuses, uh, in a time like this, if it's not a performance-based bonus based on, on, on measures and metrics versus top and bottom line growth in a nonprofit center like a hospital, um, then that, that's one argument. It, that's not what we're looking at here. Uh, so I think it is going to pose a problem for those two council members. Um, the, the narrative has already been set for them as disruptors. Some embrace that, some ostracize that. Um, but I believe the city has earned scrutiny. And if, if it's accustomed to just having a council serve as his pencil whipping body, um, he doesn't have that anymore. And so he's going to have to figure out how to work with the city council to move his agenda forward, um, uh, else be uh, confronted with, with some of these stop um, gaps in process um, that I believe he's earned. The city has earned this level of scrutiny. Um, I, I don't have an issue at all with what those two council members have done. Patty, you have executive bonuses during a crisis uh, while people are getting unpaid or trying to get unpaid leave. And then you have uh, city politics. Take your pick. What's the angle that you see that you think is uh, most important? Well, the Denver Health thing definitely was the invitation for these two council people to put the brakes on. We'll get the FEMA reimbursement. That's not the big issue here. With Denver Health, which was spun off from the city, this is an opportunity for a little oversight by council. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a move to try to bring Denver Health back in. Even though these were bonuses from 2019 performance, you could have hold, held them in abeyance. When you are asking frontline workers to take cuts to work overtime, this is not the time to give your executives bonuses. Also, it's time for us to look at a lot of these big projects. So you're reimbursing airport. You're looking at the convention center. With what's gone on with COVID-19, do we still need those projects to go forward the way they're going forward? We're dealing with new realities now. The reason the airport changes are in response to 9-11 travel changes in a lot of ways, how we handle security. What kinds of changes do we need at the airport? Should we be looking at that contract now, that big project? Should we be looking at the convention center? City council should ask more questions, not fewer. 
David, wrap it up for us. A lot to break out here. This 71-page bill was brought up on direct file, which is a rush procedure for council business. Direct file requires unanimous consent, which Heinz and C. Tobacco withheld. They did the right thing to slow the process down by just one week for study by the council and the public. When legislative bodies act in haste, they often act incompetently. We already see massive problems in the massive congressional bills about CC virus that were rushed through before anyone could read them. So let's slow down and and find out what's in the bill before they vote on it. Let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Penny Calhoun, you always start us off. Please do so again. And I'm tempted to go to Weld County, but I'm going to go instead to the Western Slope, where we have a disaster that is not created by coronavirus. The peach harvest, Mother Nature has frozen it out. looks like we're losing 90% of that crop. So there are plenty of farmers suffering right now. Here, here. David. A couple weeks ago, the Colorado Sun carried a story by Michael Booth claiming that 450,000 Coloradans were at risk of eviction because of CCP virus. Surprisingly, the study that Booth reported on so lavishly didn't disclose its data, model, or calculations. The authors said they'd send the data, model, and calculations to anyone who asked, but I asked two weeks ago, and they haven't responded. Elena. I got to give this one to uh, Vice President Pence, who uh, didn't wear a mask when he visited the Mayo Clinic earlier this week, even though their policy um, was clearly stated to him that all visitors must uh, require a mask. He said that he wanted to look workers in the eye, and I'm still scratching my head on that one. Leanne. A good one, Elena. The management team at the Walmart here uh, in the heart of Aurora, uh, who who were was aware um, of illness in their workforce, said nothing uh, up to and including uh, necessitating the Tri County Health Department shutting them down. Can I say something nice rather quickly? About a minute and a half left, Patty. These are historic times, so let's remember our past too. History. Uh, Historic Denver, celebrating its 50th anniversary, just launched a photo contest for untold stories of Denver. Everyone should be thinking about this city. Here, here. David. Welcome to 2 million new gun owners. Guys don't and ladies, don't be shy to reach out to friends and neighbors as mentor because the gun community is very supportive of newcomers. And consider the online training safety courses from the National Rifle Association and from the Colorado Department of Parks and Wildlife. Elena. I'm going to keep the pins theme going and uh, applaud him for wearing a mask later this week after he was criticized um, when he visited a General Motors plant. So way to go, Pence. Under the uh, better late than never uh, topic. And uh, wrap that for us, Leanne. I have to give a shout out to all of the nonprofits who are working to uh, support our, uh, our folks, individuals who are incarcerated right now, CCJRC, Second Chance Center, um, the work that they're doing to uh, ensure the health and safety of the incarcerated. It's unparalleled. They're working real hard. So shout out to them. Well, I'll uh, include those shout outs to all of you at home that have continued to uh, watch and support us here at Colorado Inside Out at PBS 12. We're grateful for you sticking around with us and to uh, be tolerant and patient with us as we're coming from a different environment. It is your support that is making this possible, and we are so very grateful. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.